All right, I'm here with John McDonald. John is the president of The Good. The Good is um, an awesome company. They're one of the most trusted e-commerce conversion rate and customer experience optimization advisories in the country based out of Portland. Um, John founded the company in 2009 and has been leading it ever since. They've served some of the world's largest online brands, including Adobe, Nike, Xerox, Verizon, Intel, and many more. Um, John's got an awesome story. Um, I'm so grateful to have him on the show. Um, and he's had an incredible first row seat uh, to the evolution of direct-to-consumer e-commerce over the last 10 years and is um, definitely one of the smartest people that, that we know as it relates to conversion rate optimization. So we're excited to kick this conversation off. So John, can you, can you start with your story? Like where did, you know, wherever you want to start, but where'd you come from and how did you end up where you are today? and um, just take us through it. So the good is a conversion rate optimization firm. So we help brands to convert more of their visitors into buyers through data science. So how did I get into data science? Well, I have a computer science degree in college and I coming out of college, I, I went to a school called Oberlin outside of Cleveland. And there was a couple of I started looking for jobs and I interviewed places like Microsoft, et cetera, like places you would typically expect a computer science degree to work. And I somehow came across and got in introduced to two gentlemen who were on Madison Ave in ad, ad exec world. And they had moved to Cleveland to kind of semi-retire and start their own agency. And they knew nothing about the internet. <laughs> it was just digital marketing and e-commerce was nothing to them. They just didn't get it. And they're, what they're, they decided to do was to go out and hire a computer science grad right out of college to who knew everything about the internet, supposedly, right? And make that their digital wing of the, of the new agency. And so right out of the bat, I remember being, oh, probably it was three months on the job or less. And I was thrown into a meeting with the CMO of Coke and they were talking about a campaign they were going to run. And they all looked at me and said, so can we build that microsite? And I was just like, yeah, we'll figure it out. Sure. Cause what else am I going to say in that case? Right? So here I am, I'm like 21 thrown into the fire and loving every minute of it. But I was, you know, I've always been kind of entrepreneurial. I had a, had a, a paper route as a child, mowed lawns, did all that kind of stuff to, to be a little bit more entrepreneurial. And I loved working for a startup ad agency and being thrown into the fire. And every day I was working 12 hour days, but I loved every minute of it because I just got to be in a CMO in a room with CMO of Coke at, at 21. Like how often does that happen? Right. What, what year was this? Uh, let's see, 2003, probably. Okay. Okay. And so I went from there. I worked there probably about two years, 18 months to two years before um, I really just started getting burned out because I was loving it. But I also was building a, um, what was becoming a pretty large agency for two gentlemen who respected what I did and gave me, uh, you know, a, they ended up trusting me quite a bit and gave me a lot of freedom. But at the same time, um, I, in my entrepreneurial mindset, I was building something for someone else. And that wasn't really my end goal of what I wanted to do. Uh, but I learned a lot. I moved to Portland, Oregon, where we're based out of now. And uh, I didn't know anybody here. 
And so I figured, well, I'll, I'll, you know, get into the community, meet some people. I took a job with a company called X-Plane, which um, is a management consulting firm, change management consulting firm. And I helped them. Before you go there, why? Well, I actually moved out here with a lady. So I was dating a lady who was getting her PhD and the lab and the surgeon that they worked with um, moved out to um, Oregon Health and Sciences University, which is a teaching hospital here in Portland. And so she came home one day and said, John, you know, I'm really sorry. I, you know, really like this relationship, but I have to move to Portland, Oregon. And, and I said, well, you're in luck because I'm thinking about a change anyways. And I like this relationship too. I think we should try it. And I want to be on the West Coast because that's where entrepreneurship is happening right now. It's not, it wasn't at the time. I mean, Columbus and Cleves has, has a pretty good startup community now, but back then it really didn't. And so I just said, okay, well, let's go to the West Coast. What's the worst thing that happens? We break up and I moved down South into California and Tech Mecca or whatever, right? And so I took a leap and did it. And um, so that's what brought me out here. And we, um, long story short, she moved and we broke up and, and okay. I'm still in Portland, <laughs> but, <laughs> and married to, to a wife I love. It's a different story. But um, it was really interesting because I learned entrepreneurship pretty early on and was thrown into the fire. So I knew what that was like. And when I joined a management consulting firm, I got a lot more of the professional aspect of that, meaning that we were working with massive brands on a daily basis. And I was running a, a digital team and that was really great because I, I got leadership experience um, in terms of, you know, having some, some consultants under me that, that knew digital and really been able to push change in, in a lot of communities um, that uh, were, was positive in most cases, right? And so uh, I did that for a couple of years. The company sold to a large ad agency holding group. Um, and when that happened, they had also bought in that holding group was, was a couple of digital agencies. So they really didn't need the wing that I was managing and running. So I, uh, I took that and uh, parlayed that into starting my own company. I thought it was time I do that and uh, started the good. We were originally an e-commerce development shop. That's what I started as. At the time, Shopify wasn't what it is today. Uh, everything was custom or done on Magento, which is pretty much custom theming, right? And what I found was that within about 18 months to two years, that development had already become a commodity. Mm. Everybody was willing to do it for cheaper. You could go overseas and get it. Our clients, we were working with big brands. They did not care what happened behind the scenes as long as their site functioned. They didn't care about technical debt about, you know, you, we could have strung their site together with two tin cans and a string, and they would have been happy if it processed orders and, and worked well, right? And we, I didn't really want to be in a race to the bottom on cost and, and margins. And, um, you know, I just, it wasn't really hitting my, uh, um, my passion. And so what I did is I went around the country and I interviewed all of our best clients. And I said, why did you decide to work with us? What made us different? Because it is a commodity. You could have hired anybody to build your website, but you chose us. Why? I kept hearing a theme. At the time, what I was doing was I built into all of our contracts that we would build the site. And then for three months after we launched, we would do something called continual optimization. 
And what that was, was twofold. I, one, I, I really wanted to set my team up for success. And I knew that whenever you launch a new site, it's never perfect. And I wanted to set my team and the client up to understand that, right? That at launch, there's still going to be things we want to fix and that's okay. And we should make those changes uh, and give us some grace and time to do that. And that was what that three-month retainer always was. But two, we were also collecting data about how people engaged with the new site. And we were using that to make some refinements to the user experience. Today, that's called conversion optimization, right? Back then, that wasn't a term necessarily. And so uh, once I figured out that that's why everybody hired us, uh, I pivoted the company to focus exclusively on uh, continual optimization and, and which is now called conversion optimization in most industries. So that's how we got here. Now we've been doing this for eight years or so, and we're one of the early players in conversion optimization and uh, we're fortunate to work with brands like Xerox, Nike, Adobe, The Economist, et cetera. So. Well, so you founded the company in 2009, right? Yes. When, when was that pivot? when you realized that you really wanted to go focus, when you, when you went and interviewed all the customers? It was uh, probably about late 2010 that I started realizing this was a problem in interviewing customers and started really making that change. Um, it was, you know, we had a bunch of projects that we needed to finish out. So it wasn't something where I flipped the switch overnight and just turned off all of that type of work. Instead did was just start marketing exclusively around optimization while we finished up the uh, the building development projects that we had already. And that gave us a nice cushion to to do the change with. And we still had to rip the Band-Aid in some places. You know, I, I, I still remember the day I sat everybody down on the team. We did a big company meeting. I said, okay, we're changing directions. And this means that everybody that's on this bus probably won't have a seat. Uh, you know, there we won't need all the development teams that we have. We won't need all of these other things. But... I, uh, what I did was made sure everybody knew well in advance this was happening and gave everybody the opportunity to say, hey, if you want to go interview, how can I help on write letters, recommendation, whatever I can do. And um, I still am um, friendly with, with the vast majority of people that were on the team at that point. That's awesome. Um, okay, so you've been doing conversion rate optimization for going on 10 years now. Mm-hmm. That means that you've, you've kind of been on a wild ride from an e-commerce standpoint you've kind of had a first row seat to you know yeah. the evolution of an industry but really maybe kind of like the transformation of commerce in a lot of ways um you mentioned that 2009 shopify wasn't what shopify is today everybody was building custom or building on magento or those are one and the same i'm always really interested to know how people who've had such a front row seat describe what's happened in e-commerce and in, in commerce over the last 10 years? Like what, what happened here? Well, I think the first thing is it got super simple to set up an e-com site where it used to be really complicated and uh, you had to know the inner workings of something like a Magento or, you know, hire a firm to build a site. Now anybody can go to Shopify and click one button and, and launch their e-com site. And I think that's the biggest change by far that we're seeing is the self-service aspect of this. Um, and I think as well, like it, it, you know, obviously the past year has been, past nine months or so, has really been transformational for e-commerce. But even up before that, 
I think that everything has gone to uh, software as a service in e-commerce. I mean, even if you just, you know, with Shopify and you just go on their app store, you can find an app to do anything you want to do and just click a button, install it and have 90% of the functionality really and, and be good to go. doesn't mean you wouldn't want to customize it and do a bunch of other stuff to it, but it, it's all very possible and very easy. Um, so I think that, you know, when I talked about the commoditization of development, that was a big portion of it too, was it became self-service and easy to do. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of e-commerce, we've seen it go from where everybody wanted this really high-end experience site. I remember we worked with a helmet company, um, a famous helmet company that did a, they used to do skiing helmets and they did a week-long hella skiing shoot. And they wanted this massive video. They spent hundreds of thousands of dollars doing this shoot in this video and putting it up on their website. And we were like, we'll, we'll do it. But like the people come buying this helmet are not hella skiers. It's not going <laughs> to resonate with them. Right. And what we keep seeing is the same, you know, where brands went from that massive experiential website that was super unusable. And, you know, I, I used to flash, quite a bit back in the day. And it was all about the experience and how cool you could animate everything. And, and, but it was lower on the usability. I think it was still a great experience into today because flashes, you really had to think about how people were going to engage with items um, in a non-standard way and, and be able to, to focus on usability to some degree. But I think that the whole branded experience of making a site that is all just about the brand is now gone really it's about making it more functional. And that's what I love to see. I think we've seen that transition over the last five to seven years where brands are now more about what the benefit is of their products and less about what the uh, specific uh, you know, brand is, right? So they're, they're more about how they can help consumers. And look, we've been doing this a very long time and I can tell you we've only ever seen two reasons people are at an e-commerce website. They arrive at that site because they think that your product or service can help solve their pain or need. And once they've determined that, the second thing is they want to convert as quickly and easily as possible. And anything else that a brand does that gets in the way of that really just creates a problem. Um, and so if you think about it like um, where, you know, I have a four-year-old and if I'm buying an airplane ticket, and I go into you know Delta's website and I search for my flight and then my son interrupts me, needs something, I go help him. I come back a couple minutes later and it's kicked me out of that search. I get really, really frustrated because I just spent all that time finding the perfect flights and maybe just not getting to that chance to book it yet. Um, and the, you know I understand why they need to do that. They're continually selling seats, but it's a poor consumer experience nonetheless. And I think we consumer brands have that same challenge all the time where they're not thinking about the consumer on the other side of the screen because they can't see them. And I think it's really important to bring the consumer voice into any consumer experience you're having on your site. And so many brands just do things because they think they can and uh, they think it's the best thing without involving consumers and i think it's really hard to read the label from inside the jar if you're mm -hmm. a brand you are so close to your products you're so close to your website you know all the details you know your navigation you know why you did these products what the benefits are that 
it really does require a third party to help bring that out in a brand and help them to see and have empathy for the consumer and understand what they're one of the things that you said that um actually a couple of things that you said that are interesting to me that i'd like to try to spend a little bit more time on i think that you said what's happened over the last 10 years is it got a lot cheaper to start a store do we attribute that movement predominantly to shopify or are there other tools or platforms that may not have the same amount of recognition that shopify has had i think that there are definitely more i think people know about shopify they they have the most marketing muscle and money behind them but I mean, you can go to big commerce is like another one that's super, you know, fairly easy. They try, they try to add more features. So it's a little, a little more heavy handed, but you could go and set up a WordPress site, just go to wordpress.com and add WooCommerce and that, you know, you have e-commerce built in. Um, I think there's a lot of players out there. Uh, you know, it's super easy to, um, set up a, a, a store and have square process the payments and yeah. not really have to worry about it. Right. So collecting money and fulfilling orders is not a challenge anymore. Yeah. The friction around collection has gone so far down. I mean, I, yeah, I kind of always wonder kind of really, if, you know, if you had to stack rank the impact of Shopify, Stripe, Square, um, some others on making it a lot cheaper for independent entrepreneurs to go create an e-commerce store, how would they stack rank? And probably no answer to that, but it's a question that I'd like to maybe write about at some point. I think a great way to do some consumer research and just see what do consumers think. Uh, yeah. We're always wondering what the next platform is going to be. And the reality is that, you know, five years ago, it was Magento and that's what everybody wanted. And then Magento made the big mistake of making everybody move to Magento too. And if you were going to change your complete site, have to rebuild everything, then why not go to a hosted model like a Shopify or BigCommerce, right? Because then you don't have to worry about the servers and everything else that's involved in there. And then next thing you know, they ended up in a fire sale to Adobe. And so, which is actually a great move because now they've got a really great platform that is tied in with their analytics and, and their, all of their media capabilities they have. And so if you're a big brand and you're, you're willing to have developers and, and maintain some of that yourself, it can be a wonderful platform. Cool. And the other thing that you started to go towards, I think was, um, and, and maybe I was kind of reading between the lines too much, but you started talking a little bit about, I think the way that advertising has changed in the sense that it's in mm -hmm. some ways moved from the big, big brand plays into advertising that's probably in conjunction with the way we construct our sites to just be more functional, more measurable, and more precise. Um, did, I, did, I, did I read too far? Am I leading the witness? Or was that kind of what you were alluding to? Uh, well, I think that uh, becoming a direct-to-consumer brand and starting as a direct-to-consumer brand is, is really the difference now. Mm. So many brands first thought they had to go to retail and that used to be the path. And then you would tack on e-commerce. But the problem was that kind of cut brands off at the knees around e-commerce because now they had a, a map price that they had to maintain. They were upsetting all their retailers by selling online as well, right? So they had to maintain and manage that to some degree. Instead, what we're finding now is brands are just immediately going to consumers first. And that's how they're launching. And, you know, if you see any brands on things like Shark Tank or any of that anymore, right? And 
let's take that as a grain of salt of what it is, but it, there were real brands on there. Yeah. But at the same time, they're all direct to consumer. Very, very few are in retail. And those who are in retail, the sharks are always up there saying, you need to go direct to consumer. And there was a, you know, there was if a you Portland look at, at the holdings. Sorry, there was a Portland mm-hmm. company on Shark Tank, I think last week. Rumple, have you heard of those guys? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The blankets. They yeah, did a great job. Yeah. yeah. And again, they're, they're another example of they do a lot of partnerships. So they do these partnerships with companies that um, have well-known brands and of themselves. And then they get into those well-known brand retail stores. And that's their direct line into retail. But they're doing something special and unique for those retail situations while still maintaining their direct-to-consumer approach. And I, I just think that that's really, it's for me, it's less about the... Uh, advertising has gotten easier, although it has to reach consumers through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all these platforms that are direct lines into consumers. I I think that it's gotten easier to sell without having to rely on anyone else. And that's really, I think, the Mm. key point. That's such a good point. It's interesting. You, You also said something that I think about a lot, which is, you know, what what the customer cares about is that you saw the pain. So they come to your site because they have a pain and very quickly, they're going to make a decision as to whether or not your value proposition is going to achieve the, the, the remedy that they need. Is that true of some of the more kind of like consumer oriented brands where, you know, maybe they're solving a pain, but really what they might be doing is they're serving a desire. And how do you, how do you kind of think through the difference between pain and solution versus kind of conspicuous consumption and desire-based selling? That's a great question. The reality is that my pain in that point is I want something. I want to be right? cool. I want to look and cool. So, right. Do I, do I need the latest iPad? No, but I want to, <laughs> I'm going to go onto the site. And the thing that I want to do is learn about that iPad and tell me why I should have this new iPad. Why do I, should I spend the money on this? Right. And so while it's a desire, like I could use the iPad that's a few years old and it would be just fine. But if I want to spend the money, uh, you know, okay, I'm not convinced yet that I need it, but tell me why, you know, like it helped me learn about that product and do it quickly in a way that is benefiting me, not you just trying to market. And I use that example because Apple's really, really good at that. You know, um, if you, there's an amazing book, uh, The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs um, by Carmen Gallo, I believe, Carmine Gallo. Um, great book about how he always would lead with what the benefit was and why you should have this product and why it's different instead of focusing on how cool it is, right? That just always came through. And that's what would be really important. Super interesting. Um, so that's a really good, I think, description of what's changed in e-commerce. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about what's changed in the world of conversion rate optimization? Could take us back to 2010 and work us through um, just kind of the arc of the last decade with the several kind of major major things yeah. that happened. Well, the first thing is that back then people didn't know what it was. And now if you're an e-com site doing, you know, even 250K a year, you probably have heard about it, right? And you, you're thinking about when can I start doing this? It's on your radar. Uh, you're reading these articles. I think that the one thing that, that has really happened here is beyond the, 
somewhat democratization of conversion optimization. It used to be, it started out, you know, let's just say that the first big case study was um, Barack Obama's cam mm -hmm. first campaign when he used a lot of A-B testing tools and that just blew up his funding. And it was ridiculous because he had it down to where he could send an email to a few thousand people on his millions of people list. And within 20 minutes, know which one was going to generate X amount additional revenue and send that very Do we know what ESP he used? And he did. Um, no, but I do know he had the gentleman from Optimizely, which is one of the original tool sets working with him. And that original tool set be turned into Optimizely in what it that's is cool. today. Um, and that's, you know, really Optimizely was amazing just tool set. Um, and now it's really focused on enterprise and rightfully so they've, they've kind of leveled up because as this has become democratized, they realize the real money for them is no longer in the hundred dollar a month subscription. It's in the $15,000 a month subscription. Right. And so, um, but I think that democratization of the tool sets has come a long way over the last handful of years, uh, where now it's easy to collect heat maps and user engagement data. Uh, everybody's using Google Analytics and there's so much information you can get out of that. Uh, and then I think you know, it's really important just to note that people are paying attention to this now. And that's really been a change over the last five years where folks knew about it, but they didn't pay attention to the data. They were looking for hacks. They were looking, give me the checklist that's gonna change my conversions overnight. And I think a lot of folks have realized over the last handful of years that, that doesn't exist. Uh, that it really is something where you need to pay attention to the engagement from your specific site visitors and use that data to alter your site. And it's no longer okay to just copy your competitors. And a lot of folks are now realizing, oh, I'm copying that competitor, but I was opted into their test. And that's not something they're actually doing. I, I saw the test and I didn't know I was opted into their test or you know, I guess I, I, I've said this before, but it's, there's a reason that racehorses wear blinders, <laughs> right? So if you are copying your competitors, you're never going to beat them. You're always going to be chasing them and you're going to get off of your own course and you're going to upset your own consumers. So I highly recommend that brands just don't, don't pay attention. Don't copy your competitors. Um, is it okay to know what people are doing out there? Yeah, I guess. Everybody's curious. They're going to look anyways. But if a brand tells you that they're converting it at 4% and you're at 2%, do you really believe that brand? Like, are they really going to tell you their honest numbers? I, I have, you know, I'm behind the scenes a lot. So I get to see what people say. And I know that's not their numbers because I have the data. And I find it really interesting that you know, you see these industry events and people are touting numbers and these averages. And I'm like, that's nowhere near the average. And <laughs> does it matter anyways? Because the only conversion rate that matters is one that's always improving. That's really it. One of the most interesting kind of examples of, of the herd mentality that can be so damaging that I've, I find so fascinating is what the big brick and mortar category leading retailers were doing in the early 2000s mm -hmm. where they were watching Amazon and kind of constantly doing these superficial analyses of Amazon because Amazon was unprofitable. Therefore, e-commerce must be unprofitable. And so they missed a decade of what could have been the right foundation building. Um, 
In fact, there's a super interesting article that came out on Medium in the last couple of weeks from this guy named Gavin Baker, um, mm-hmm. writing about what he thinks will happen with the category leading retailers over the next decade and how COVID might be a real accelerant for them and they might be beneficiaries given finally they have the right resources focused on e-commerce. Yep. Um, but yeah, that's that's, that's one of the that's just really, really stimulating to me. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting folks copy Amazon. I really yeah. do because <laughs> it's, you know, um, first of all, there's no branding really in Amazon uh, on their site and, and rightfully so. It's also a hot mess of a site, quite honestly. Like it's, you know, it's really hard to find what you want to do, get out of the products. And, you know, what's Amazon good for? Finding the lowest price. When you come to Amazon, you already know what you want, right? You might choose between one or two options, something of that sort, you're, but you're likely not doing a ton of product research. What you're doing there is looking for the lowest price and or I want it, I need it immediately. I need it next day or two days. And that's what's going to make it happen. There's so many people try to copy Amazon. And, uh, it doesn't work on their site. And again, it's, it's because you really need to focus on what your consumers are doing, what your consumer challenges are, and use that to optimize your site. Don't focus on what other people like Amazon are doing. Um, I, I just don't, I don't see the value in that. Yeah. One of the things, and I think that's probably a really useful segue into, you know, what we try to talk about a lot on this podcast is differentiation. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, as I look at the landscape, I see kind of, it's almost binary. It's there's Amazon on one side mm-hmm. and then there are now millions of direct consumer competitors. Amazon is commodity, it's speed, it's rapid customer experience, it's price. Mm -hmm. D2C is, um, it's way more brand, way more differentiation, way more story, way more founder passion. Um, It's becoming more convenient as Shopify invests in logistics. But um, before I ask my question, do you think that's an accurate portrayal of what independent merchants are living in the midst of, or would you, would you qualify it in different ways? I hundred I percent think that's accurate. And this isn't new in the world of, of, um, of retail, right? You think about, you know, traditional retail, not e-commerce, but offline retail. It's always been the case. There's always been the Walmarts of the world versus the specialty retailers. If you really want to find the best hiking backpack, are you going to go to Walmart or are you going to go to the hiking backpacking store? You're probably going to go to an REI or something that you know is going to provide that best practice. Uh, and, and I think that's the biggest difference is online it's made it much easier you no longer have to drive to your local rei or wherever right and compare and drive back to walmart to see if they have the same product at a lower price now it's super easy to do that online but the convenience factor is still the same if i'm on rei's website and i see the pack i want and it's a reasonable price to me and they can ship it to me in a reasonable time frame i'm just make it easy to buy it at that point Right. And then people won't go over to Amazon uh, and start a price compare. And so I think that it's, it's very true and it's still, still relevant. So the question I'm really interested in is what you see from companies who really impress you around um, this concept of differentiation. And before we go there, can you tell listeners 
a little bit about the types of customers that the good works with in terms of what size companies are these? Um, is there, mm -hmm. you know, is there kind of a, a range that you guys focus on or is it across the map? Well, we have two separate divisions, if you will. We have um, our more enterprise division uh, where these brands are generally doing over, you know, uh, over, well over a million a year. Um, and I, I, that's technically not enterprise, but that's how we've divided it up. Um, and those folks are, you know, spending, you know, starting at $10,000 a month to optimize their site. So it's, a, you know, larger brands that are, have enough traffic to be able to see a good return on that investment, which is generally 50, 60,000 visitors or sessions per month, at least. Um, the vast majority of our brands are doing more than that, but that's where you start to see the break off from return on investment. Uh, and you can realize a return on that. Um, and, you know, then we also have our SMB side of the house that is really working to democratize conversion optimization more. Uh, what we're doing through there is offering things like a, a quick hit assessment where we're helping them to collect eye tracking heat maps of their product, of their product pages, home pages, category pages, and um, give them, you know, a report and a, a quick uh, 30, 45 minute meeting to review it with a strategist. Um, and then we also have what we call our conversion growth accelerator, which is a uh, whole online community. And I talked earlier about how the evolution of CRO has been where, you know, brands are always have, were looking for that quick hit. And now I've realized that's not the case where you can't just get a checklist. And um, that's really what the accelerator is about is how do you take advice and customize it for every brand's needs? So what the accelerator does is it actually question, it has questionnaires and specific areas that you should optimize to help a brand customize an action plan just for them. So we have algorithms set up that take our decade plus of experience. We write questions, which is part of the, the, the hard part. Once you answer those questions, uh, you then get a customized action plan that tells you all about why we're making the recommendations we're making, showing you examples of what you should be doing and then giving you a specific checklist that is very customized to your brand and your needs. Um, and so that's really exciting for us because we're able to get that down to a price point that anyone can afford. And so even a smaller brands can really get in and start optimizing their site. That's super cool. Um, okay. So that's, that's, I think the right context for where I want to go next, which is, and maybe you can break it down by the companies that have achieved a million dollars plus in sales. They've achieved 50, 60, $70,000 sessions, unique sessions mm -hmm. a month. These are brands that have, in many ways have exited the long tail of the Shopify ecosystem. Like these, these brands have a real chance to create really meaningful life-changing value for their founders and their employees. Um, what are they doing? Like what are the patterns that you see from the best of them um, to differentiate in the context of that D2C revolution on one side and Amazon on the other? And then I want to ask the same question for the earlier brands that are further down in the long tail. Well, for the larger brands, it's all about product market fit and that they found that product market fit and they invested early in that, right? So it's what is the, the messaging and what is that market they're after? So they're not trying to go after everybody. And, you know, they've gotten larger, but they've maintained their focus in their niche. And that's really where the value has been driven for them. Instead of trying to be an Amazon and sell everything to everyone, 
or expand their product line out to everybody. Their focus, you see all these DTC brands now that are really focusing on, and they're making great money by focusing down and being experts in one thing. Uh, you know, look at things like uh, I just did a teardown for Bite uh, toothpaste. Well, it's, you know, what is it? Well, it's these toothpaste little capsules almost that you chew and then brush your teeth and the whole thing for. So they've been able to eliminate uh, the, the plastic that comes from toothbrushes or toothpaste, right? And they sell wooden toothbrushes as well. And they're just trying to eliminate all of these environmental concern. Where are they going after? They're going after that environmental uh, concern customer and they're hitting them with one product which is toothpaste right and or dental hygiene set of products and so you see things like that you see things like warby parker right direct to consumer focusing on eyewear and that's it they didn't expand out to fashion or any of these other big brands right the, the other big categories that you could do and i think that's really what's happening here because now you can drill down on what the benefits are what the what the story is and you can find ways to expand your product line out. Um, and you can do things like subscription models and things like that that are truly going to bring recurring revenue in. And um, it's just much easier. You know, I, I tell brands this all the time. Like, if you ride the fence in the middle, you don't have any raving fans or haters. And you need to have both. And the only way to do that is to jump off the fence and go really far to one at one side so that some people love you. And those people are going to love you with all of their, their buying power. And then some people are going to hate you. And that's okay because you need people to hate you to make your products better. I'm not suggesting you try to always bring those people over, but there's some people like bite toothpaste. They're never going to get over that. There's going to be like, I've been brushing my teeth with Colgate for decades. Why would I change? Right. Or, you know, it was funny. We did this teardown. And I said, the first thing I said when I saw the site was, okay, I'm open to this. But the first thing they're going to have to do is convince me this isn't disgusting. Right. And like, that's, that's the honest truth. Um, but they convinced me in the end of going through their site, why I should be part of their, their raving fan side. Um, and I think that's really what's going to happen, continue to happen. There's going to be a ton of direct to consumer niche brands. And there might be a house of brands, some companies that are holding companies that own several niche brands, but they're never going to be combined into one conglomerate like we've seen all these years. Super interesting. Same question for the smaller companies. And, mm -hmm. and maybe the, the, the add-on to that question is, if you're doing $100,000 in sales a year, $250,000 a year, um, and things are kind of not hockey sticking, is that an indication that you don't have product market fit that's strong enough typically for, for the folks that you, you operate with? Or is that more of an indication that there's not enough sophistication or maturity around all the different marketing pieces and it's just not, the puzzle isn't put together in the right way yet? Well, I think there's always that story that people like to hear that seems like an overnight success and it's never the overnight success, right? It's always been a decade or what, you know, several years. Uh, and so the first thing is patience. And with a lot of these smaller brands, just trying to get 1% better every day is really the way to go. You're never, very rarely, I'm gonna say never, but very rarely do you hit the nail on the head immediately, right? You really want to be listening to consumers and involving them in your decisions. And that's where 
are going to start learning <clears throat> pretty quickly what you should change, how you should niche down, et cetera. Um, and so I think that, you know, it's very possible that you don't have product market fit and you need to pay attention to that. But if you can get a hundred people to buy your product, you can get a thousand people. If you can get a thousand, you can get 10,000. If you can get 10,000, you can get a million people to buy your product. It's, it's a possibility. When, when and how you know whether or not you have product market fit is um, written about by many, many people. And a lot of people have opinions on it. If you were talking to a close friend who's running an e-commerce business, doing 100K in sales, mm -hmm. and it's, they don't really know what's going on, um, how would you help them understand kind of the degree to which they do or do not have product market fit? First thing I would tell them to do is user testing. Send people to their site who match their ideal customer profile, who they think there's their ideal customer profile. And just do a Zoom call with them, you know, and um, offer to pay them for their time. But you want them to be somewhat impartial, not a family member or a friend. You want them to be honest, right? So don't have your mom be, be part of this, right? And so what you want to do then is just, let's just say you're selling a t-shirt, okay? Your t-shirt company. Um, and send them, have them open up your site, record it, share their, have them share their screen. And just say, okay, you're looking for a t-shirt, go. And then watch what they do, observe, right? And you'll see and ask them to talk out loud about the experience that they're having as they're going through the site, right? So then they'll say things like, wow, you know, I really like these type of t-shirts and uh, I can't determine if your product fits within that uh, or what's the sizing like on this? I just can't tell what the sizing is like. Here's the thing you're gonna find out real quick from doing this. What are all the challenges that consumers are having that you're blind to? I said earlier, it's really hard to read the label from inside the jar. This is getting outside the jar. You're listening to consumers who don't know the products, and they're really going to tell you very quickly what it is that, that they're having challenges with, and then just solve all of those problems, and you uh, will the, grow. What do you think the proportion of brands are that are doing that type of customer-focused work? Mm -hmm. uh, not enough. <laughs> um, here's the thing. Our mission at The Good is to remove all of the bad online experiences until only the good ones remain. Tell mm. them how we got our name. That's a good and mission. So, thank you. Yeah. So I'm a huge proponent of bringing consumers into this because they're going to tell us what's bad. It doesn't matter what I think is bad. It doesn't matter what the brand thinks is bad or good for that matter. It matters what your consumers think, right? If you have those raving fans and you're on that side of the fence, then they're going to be willing to share that with you. And good news, people who are on the other side that hate you are also going to be publicly sharing that. So just pay attention, right? It'd be like, you know, uh, I came on Twitter the other day because the ESPN app on my phone, every time, half the time I open it and I get nothing, like it's just a blank app. Half the time, like the video doesn't work on it. Really frustrating. Like I just wanted to check the score. Right. And like, this is what's happening to me all I, I played basketball in college and like, I'm still to this day. Well, not right now, but I try to play as much basketball as I can. And, uh, and I just wanted to check the score of the finals. Like what's going on right now. I wanted, they were streaming it in the app supposedly, but it worked very poorly for me. And so I just went on Twitter and I was like, you know, I, and I said, you know, I really love ESPN's app when it works, but man, it is so buggy. It hardly ever works for me. And, you know, I tagged ESPN in it and like, I thought it was interesting. I got a lot of people saying, yes, that's, you know, like I have that same issue. Like this is obviously a bigger bug, but ESPN didn't be like, hey, thanks for the feedback. They didn't pay yeah. attention at all. 
And yeah. so it's kind of like, uh, all right, well, what do I do now? Right. <laughs> like, um, so I think that that's where if you, if you open up and listen, the if feedback's out there, just, just pay attention to it. It's awesome. Um, two more questions for you before we wrap up, where can people find the good? Pretty simple. Uh, the good.com. Okay. Um, the question I like to close with is if you had a brother or a sister or um, somebody who's really dear to you come to you and say that they're, they're pretty excited about starting a direct consumer mm -hmm. brand today. Yeah. Um, what, what are the one or two questions that you'd ask them to evaluate how, um, how well they're thinking about what could be a very painful experience or a really incredible mm -hmm. life-changing experience? First thing is, can they describe who their ideal customer is? and what pain they're solving for that consumer, right? So they need to be able to tell me it's a specific person. They need to be able to envision that person and they need to have a pain that is unsolved uh, or solved in a different way, right? And the second thing is, have they talked to those consumers yet? How many do they need to have spoken with? You know, five, that's a really low number. If you can get five people to clearly tell you this is a good idea, five strangers, right? Again, not five family members, not, not your mom. If you can get five people to tell you this is a good idea, I would buy that. And even better, take a pre-order. Say, I'm coming out with this product. Would you give me 25 bucks right now to buy it? And if they're like, okay, you tell them, I'm going to sell it for 50. But if you want to buy it right now, I'll give it to you for 25. And if they say, yeah, here's 25 bucks, you know, you have a product. There we go. That's good. Anything else? That's all. If, uh, if there's any questions, anyone could just email me. I'm, I'm an open book. Happy to answer. I read every email that comes in. Uh, John, J-O-N at thegood.com. John, thank you so much for doing this. We've uh, really appreciated it. And this has been super valuable for our listeners. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, uh, best of luck.